You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Brian Castrucci. He's the president and CEO of the de Beaumont Foundation based in Bethesda, Maryland. He's been in that position now for 10 years. He's an expert on state and local public health departments. Great emphasis on practical initiatives, practical solutions. He's the editor and contributing author of the Practical Playbook, Public Health, Primary Care Together. And we're, we're here to talk about some very creative and quite important initiatives that he's undertaken with a very renowned Republican pollster, Frank Luntz. But before we get to that, Brian, first of all, thank you for joining us this morning. And let's just open, tell us a little bit about yourself. As an epidemiologist, you've brought a special interest in health philanthropy and public health practice. Tell us a bit about the de Beaumont Foundation. I'm, many of us are not very familiar with it. And you've got a special focus on communities, hands-on, applied practicality, and the like, all of which is, is very commendable. So welcome, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for having me. I identify as an epidemiologist, as a public health practitioner, and also as the CEO of the de Beaumont Foundation. And actually, all three are central to my professional identity. My experience as a maternal child health epidemiologist and administrator in state and local public health departments helps the de Beaumont Foundation focus on developing and sharing practical tools and resources with health officials around the country. Our practical focus at the foundation really stems from the values of our founder, Pete de Beaumont. Uh, he was the founder of the Brookstone Company. And he was a resourceful entrepreneur who literally built a business around selling practical, hard-to-find tools. And we're trying to bring his ideals to our work and take pride at being lean and nimble and making the biggest possible impact. And as a philanthropy, we are afforded the opportunity to take risks, to test ideas and concepts and learn from our mistakes. Ultimately, it's this ability to explore and grow that leads to the development of innovative programs and tools that we hope improve the health of communities across the nation. That's great. Let's talk about these, this partnership that you forged uh, over the last several months with Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster. As I read over the material reporting on your activities, it looked to me like you started out in late 2020 with polls. You were doing, I think you've done three polls, if I read the accounts correctly. And, and then you've begun matching those with focus groups. You've done two that have gotten quite a bit of media attention, uh, focused predominantly on, on Republican leadership, Republican voters, Republicans, you know, man and woman in the street. Tell us about that strategy. Why did you feel that it was important for the, you and the foundation to jump in in this way? And how did the strategy of investments evolve with Frank Luntz in terms of polls and focus groups combined? So our mission as a public health philanthropy is to build support for vital public health policies and help promote the tireless work of state and local health departments around the country. And that's especially true during a pandemic. And so given the politicization of the pandemic, it became clear very early on that in order for 
Americans, no matter their race or politics, to rally around vital public health measures, we needed to change the COVID conversation. Really, from the start of the pandemic, it was clear that we were missing the mark in a big way when it came to communicating about the seriousness of the pandemic and the importance of basic public health practices like mask wearing and then eventually life-saving vaccines. And this was particularly true among conservative audiences. And so there were a bunch of public health folks having a Twitter conversation. I happened to mention, I think we really need to have someone like Frank Luntz work with us and just randomly tagged him in a tweet. And he jumped at the opportunity to help. And so what started as a Twitter exchange ended up turning into a very effective partnership. And that partnership led us to commission the four polls to identify messaging and language that would help build support for critical public health measures during this pandemic and increase confidence in COVID vaccines. And not only among conservative audience, but among all Americans. Our strategy from the beginning has always been to identify the messaging that would be most effective in changing minds in saving lives. We started out focusing on Black Americans, Latinx, young women who were showing the most concerns about taking the vaccine. And we identified specific language and messaging that resonated within those groups. But as confidence grew among them, reluctance among conservatives remained high. And so we turned our attention to GOP and Trump voters to identify messaging that was most effective to them. So let's put in context for a second who Frank Luntz is. I've known Frank for over 20 years. And, you know, Frank is somebody who's known as a, a master of language, somebody who is a master of messaging. He's the guy who turned uh, conversations about estate taxes into a discussion about death taxes. What did you learn from working with Frank it was most important about messaging when it came to talking to these various communities who were vaccine hesitant? Being able to work with Frank is a master class in communication. I hold a doctorate in public health leadership from the University of North Carolina and probably have learned more from Frank in the past six months. And so working in the focus groups and then confirming that with the polls, we were able to see that folks wanted facts especially among more conservative audiences. Don't manipulate. Don't judge and ridicule. Give people the facts that they need about the vaccine and then give them the freedom to make the choice as to whether they're going to take it because ultimately it is their choice. So that messaging resonated. It's educating, not indoctrinating. Those were messages that worked. And then along the way, you, you test other language, um, language around lockdown. You know, lockdown isn't a particularly good word. It's something you do in prison. We needed to have stay-at-home protocols. Are people more apt to fear a virus or a pandemic? And it was the word pandemic. And so you start to weave those words into your messaging. And it, and it really, it's just a way to help people understand the decisions in front of them and then make the choice that's right for them. And we hope that choice is to take the vaccine. Well, was it, you know, by the time you were talking to these groups, was it too late to get to them because of all the messaging that was politicized that came before you got to them? So we tested that very question. Is it too late? Has it been too politicized? And what we found is people really want to hear from their doctors. And that's part of what we have to mobilize. We have to mobilize a ground game. We have to make Every physician visit, COVID-19 vaccination needs to be a vital sign. 
What's your height? What's your weight? Do you smoke? Have you taken your COVID-19 vaccine? Because people yeah. want to hear from these trusted voices. And a doctor is a trusted voice. And that's who they trust the most, right? Their, their primary care doctors is who they trust the most. Their primary care doctors. And we actually asked the question, who would you rather listen to about taking the vaccine, your doctor or former President Trump? And across the board, it was your doctor. We're hearing a lot from folks like Molly Ann Brody and other pollsters. And then Deborah Burks also, when she came on here a couple of weeks ago, emphasis on getting family members talking to one another, getting mothers talking to their sons and daughters, getting children talking to their older parents. What are you picking up on that? We need a multi-sector approach to getting people to take the vaccine. And so everyone has a role to play. It's physicians, it's pastors, it's family members, and it even can be politicians. But we need to hear from people that the public trusts. And so you build those trusting relationships more with your physician, your family, and your pastor than you do maybe your politician. And so let's make sure that everyone is talking about it and not not manipulating folks, not pressuring folks, but talking to them. Here's a simple sentence. I understand that you might have some concerns about the vaccine. What questions can I answer for you? You know, back in the first Obama term, the uptake of HPV, the cervical cancer vaccine among adolescent girls and boys was really fraught, right? It, it, very, very low numbers and a lot of resistance by parents, a lot of hesitation among health providers to push to to urge parents and adolescent girls and adolescent boys to take this up. And, the Obama, and President Obama put together a blue ribbon commission for one year. They came up with a set of recommendations. And the lead recommendation was got to convince health providers to take this up and, and be really serious about it. And this is how this might happen. And within a couple of years, in fact, the, that happened and the numbers went way up really fast. So your discovery about providers is very important. What's the next step in getting the providers to actually do it? We have to engage them. We are producing a toolkit for physicians literally as we speak. It'll go out this week, um, which will give them the messaging. But you also, you, you could work with the electronic medical records companies to put that prompt in the EMR so that when providers are having interactions with their patients, they can remember to ask because it's really it's, it's very simple it's just like when we were doing tobacco control you you see your doctor to have you had your covid vaccine yes we're good we don't have to talk about it again if it's yes i haven't but i'm planning to make sure they have a plan and then lastly if they say no i'm not i'm not planning to do that then we need to share information hopefully that that physician can say i've had mine let me tell you why i made that choice and what questions can i answer for you so Yes, physicians are the most trusted. And then you're talking about family members and you're talking about pastors. But I keep hearing from people like Republican male friends, for instance, that things like, oh, you know, they'll get around to it. They're too busy. They don't want to go out to so-and-so's vaccine place. And, you know, what about the people who don't go to their doctors regularly? So we've worked a lot on acceptance of the vaccine, and we have to equally work on access. This has to be a vaccine that you can take anywhere at any time. We need folks on the street just grabbing people saying, hey, are you interested in getting a COVID-19 vaccine? Come on in right here. We can give it to you. So we have to take down every single barrier. Listen, I'm a type 2 diabetic and a hypertensive. 
And so I made sure that I got this vaccine. I traversed eight different websites to try to get this vaccine. And if I was younger, I'm still young. I'm not going to say if I was young. If I was younger and I was healthy, I'm not going to traverse those eight websites. That's just the reality. And so we have to take down all of the, the possible barriers to folks getting the vaccine. So it needs to be both a, a dual strategy. You need the acceptance of the vaccine, but you also need to make sure they have easy access. At CSIS, we've had over the last 10 months, we've had a high-level panel convened by CSIS and the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. I co-chair that with Heidi Larson from the London School and my colleague Catherine Bliss is the director of that project. And we've looked really carefully at this data and the evolution of the data. And there's been a sweeping change of, of outlook towards two-thirds of Americans across the board embracing the vaccine. No problem there. That's a big change. But we've got a hard core of 15% who are refusals and another 6 or 7% who are saying only if required, only if required would they consider that. And this is a matter of domestic security, right? I mean, if we can't if we're falling significantly short of herd immunity, it's just going to force us to struggle indefinitely against these outbreaks. And so it really is a matter of national interest and a matter of domestic security. And it needs to be seen as such. That gets to two questions. One is, what more should the Biden administration be doing to try and reach these Republican voters? Because it's an awkward, obviously an awkward and very difficult thing for them. And what more should Republican leadership be doing? I mean, they have some serious responsibilities here to speak to their own constituency and in the right way, not in the wrong way, right? So what's your view on those two questions? I don't think it's just the Biden administration that has a quandary. I think it's it's American. It's a, it's all American. Yes. What's unfortunate is that COVID has been politicized from day one. Typically, when our nation is faced with a crisis, we come together. But COVID has become a political debate. And by its nature, a debate has a winner or a loser. When it comes to getting America vaccinated, it can't be a debate because if we don't get Americans vaccinated, we all lose. There is no winner. We have to keep telling people the facts and we need to find whether it's the Biden administration. I hope it is more Republican leaders. We're working actively with Republican members of Congress who are also physicians to talk about how we deliver messages to their constituents. You could just Google Congressman Murphy from the 3rd Congressional District in North Carolina. He put up a great video to his constituents talking about getting vaccinated. So I think there's this perception that Republican leaders aren't talking, and, and I don't think that's necessarily true. We had a focus group a couple of weeks back where we had Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Wenstrup and other leaders within the Republican Party who were working with us to help develop messaging to help reach those hard to reach conservatives. So they're working on it. And I, and I think we now need to mobilize our ground game. What about the fact that those leaders are watching former President Trump vilify Fauci and the death threats continue against Fauci and Deborah Birx, who's also been openly vilified by former President Trump recently. If you're a politician in North Carolina and, and that sort of noise is continuing, really venomous, violent, inducing noise coming from the former president, how is that going to shape the calculations of elected Republican leaders talking to their constituents? I think we're seeing Republican leaders stand up and speak their truth as physicians, as leaders. It's not going to be simply what the former president says. And, and we're showing in our polling 
that his impact on people's choice to get the vaccination is not that strong. And so let's get to our ground game. Let's get to mobilizing physicians and pastors and family members, you know, talking to people about the vaccine. And that's where we have to really put our energies. Debating what the former president did or did not do does not help us get anyone vaccinated right now. It's not what he did or did not do. It's what he's doing today. So our overarching goal for, for all Americans needs to be across every county, every city, every class, every color. How do we get you vaccinated? What do you need to know? Is it an access issue? Is it an acceptance issue? Let's talk about it. We can't control what President Trump does. And so that's just part of the calculation. But there are enough people working to get people vaccinated and wanting to talk positively that I think we can get there. Brian, one of the things I find really strange is that during campaign season, we were inundated with television ads and ads all over social media about who to vote for and what proposition this and that. I haven't seen one social media ad or one television ad or one message really on a sustained basis about that I should get vaccinated. Why isn't there anything like that out there? Well, I think the Ad Council has put ads out there on social media, and we are currently working to try to do the same thing. Um, we had to cut through some of the politicization, and I think we've done that. And Frank has, has helped us as a real emissary into Republican politics to talk to them about the importance of taking the vaccine, getting us back to those things that are important to us. Because again, if this is a political debate, we all lose. Well, and you're arguing that the partisan gap is decreasing. Do you actually see evidence of that? I mean, you were saying that some of the physicians in the in the Republican Party are stepping forward. I mean, we know from our experience that former Republican officials, people like Bill Frist, who we know, are are stepping forward. Who who else do you know or, or currently, you know, what kind of current officials are really stepping up and helping you put this message out? And where do you see the the partisan gap decreasing? So between March and April, there was a 20% increase in Republicans saying that they were vaccinated, likely or probably going to get vaccinated. And that went from 59% to 71% in just one month. When you look at the focus group that we did in the, I think it was late March, we had at that focus group, Congressman Wenstrup, Senator Cassidy, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, and former Governor Chris Christie, all engaging in an active conversation in a focus group with vaccine-hesitant Republicans and talking to them about, about getting the vaccine. And so they were there, and that was on the record. You can see that focus group online and in, in Washington Post articles. And so I think, I think that's where we're starting to see people thinking about messaging and realizing that we need to get every American vaccinated, regardless of political party. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that progress, Brian. That's terribly important. I mean, at the end of your most recent focus group, Frank Luntz said something that I thought was a bit sobering, right? Is despite all of this progress, he said, the further we go into the vaccination process, the more passionate the hesitancy is. If you've refused to take this vaccine this long, it's going to be hard to switch you. I mean, he seemed to be suggesting that, OK, the numbers are getting better, but you've still got 15 percent who are hardcore refuseniks and another six or seven percent who are who are pretty t tough to convince. Also, 
what does that mean that we have to have an even? I mean, in, in talking to Molly Ann, asking her, what are the carrots and incentives that are going to pull these people to rethink and come away from a pretty hardened position? Getting the movable middle is one thing, and I think that requires one kind of strategy. Getting this hardcore, deeply held, hesitant and refusal population to change is another matter, I think, entirely. What's your thinking on how to approach that group? This is not a new public health problem. There were people who during the AIDS crisis were, and still today, you know, weren't using condoms. We have some of the lowest smoking rates in recorded history, and there's still people who smoke. There's always going to be a kind of an immovable no, but that doesn't mean we give up. We make sure that we get every single person, every piece of information they need to make this choice. And ultimately, they're going to have the freedom to make the choice. But what I have to do, what colleagues have to do, we have to give them information, not manipulate, educate, and inform. And that's our goal. That's our goal in public health. That's our responsibility is to not give up at the end of the game. We got to keep going. This is very refreshing to hear this, you know, and very, really commendable. You're fighting a battle also, not just with this population, you're fighting a battle against a polluted digital media world with lots of disinformation and misinformation. So have you been engaging with, with tech and social media around trying to use, use their platforms to get your messages out? We have not, but I think that is the big lesson for us as a public health community is this was the kind of first pandemic that's played out against a backdrop of social media. And so I remember when I was in college and you saw that guy on the quad who had the sign that said the world will end tomorrow and you just kind of went to class and ignored him. The problem is he now has 25 million Twitter followers. And we have to combat that moving yeah. forward. We need better strategies. We need a better social game in public health. And we need to start thinking about that now. Yeah, Brian, so what's next? What are, you, what are you all doing now with the business community, for instance? Are you trying to bring them into this as well? Is there How, how many more forces can you mobilize in the trusted world to, to change the tide? We need everyone. This is an all hands on deck moment. And business leaders can be a driving force in helping build vaccine confidence. For employees, several businesses have incentivized vaccination by offering four hours of paid leave or a financial incentive. For consumers, campaigns like the one from Krispy Kreme that gives those with a vaccine card a free donut could definitely help. But every single person can play a role in getting people vaccinated. And then even more importantly, when we get the vaccine and we get into everybody and we get through this pandemic, businesses have an important role in helping to build support for our neglected public health infrastructure. We've lost 550,000 people, but also 100,000 American businesses. And if we don't come away from this recognizing that our safety, security, and economic prosperity is dependent on a robust public health system, and we need to reckon with the fact that most of these deaths were preventable. And the reason they weren't were because of our choices and how we fund public health. That's a conversation that has to happen. Did you and Frank learn anything that was unexpected to you while you were in the course of doing this? I think what I learned from that fo focus group in March is that when you engage people with facts, you can change hearts and minds. I mean, it's a lesson we know. Good stories and good data change people's minds. And that's what we have to keep going back to. Good stories and good data. That's our, that's our formula for getting through this pandemic and getting people vaccinated. What did you learn in April? It looked like April was a little bit more sobering. The April folks, again, at a different time, 
It was a little bit more sobering, but the poll that we did along with that focus group found that the J&J pause did not hurt enthusiasm for Pfizer or Moderna. And I appreciate that media has to tell a story. And there are several stories about how the J&J vaccine is now not something people want. That's a glass half empty viewpoint. My job is to help people get vaccinated, build their confidence and help them make the right choice. And so I want to focus on the fact that here are the, here are the facts about the vaccine and here's the safety that's there for Pfizer and Moderna. And more importantly, for only six cases, we pulled a whole vaccine off the shelf. So if people are concerned about safety, that should be encouraging. That should build confidence, not shake it. This really feels like one of the most daunting, you know, challenges though, because, you know, it's not like you can flip a switch. Once there's been a, you know, something so politicized like this, it's not easy and, and it's become tribal in political circles. It's not easy to flip the switch back. If you don't want daunting challenges, don't go into public health. <laughs> yeah. Daunting challenges was a virus killing gay men in the 80s. Yeah. A daunting challenge was we used to give, you know, physicians used to hawk cigarettes to people. Right. If anyone's up for a challenge, it's, it's the state and local health departments and the public health community in this country. And if we lead with public health, we'll get through this pandemic. What gives you the most hope for optimism? We can't lose sight of all that's been accomplished, like in record time. More than 90 million Americans are fully vaccinated and confidence is growing. And we're headed in the right direction. We're starting to see past our differences and actually beginning to see our mutual interests. We're starting to see people judging less and more fact sharing and a genuine interest among many national leaders to do what's best for Americans. And I, I also draw significant hope from the dedicated work of state and local health officials and others who have been on the ground since day one. It will be each American's choice as to whether or not they take this vaccine. But I think when presented with the facts, without ridicule or judgment, people are going to make the right choice. That's what gives me hope. Thank you, Brian. Since your career has been so centered on state and local public health yeah. authorities, we had a conversation recently with the team that runs the National Association of County and City Health Officials, Nacho. It was a very disturbing conversation in the sense that they painted a picture of a community that's underfinanced and understaffed, that's been attacked in their localities over and over again and are beaten up and exhausted and living in fear and and that there's already been lots of resignations, but there's a sense that when we get out of the acute phase, folks are going to flee, flee their jobs and go do something else. And lots of state legislatures that are also putting in place voter suppression measures are taking away authorities of public health authorities. Paradoxically, the exact opposite of what you might have expected. And it had to do with, you know, these authorities getting into clashes locally politically around masking and social distancing and and avoiding congregate settings and the like. What are you observing in terms of that? It looks like a, a, a national crisis to me. Well, it is a national crisis and we need to have this conversation. Our choices created the vulnerabilities that were present to allow COVID to devastate our nation. We now have to close those vulnerabilities. We need to have this conversation. We need a national reckoning on public health. And we need to fund public health like we do defense. 700 plus billion dollars every year goes to defense. Tell me a foreign nation that's taken 550,000 American lives on American soil. 
this isn't a funding decision today. It's not a one-time thing. It's, a, it's an investment in the future safety of this country. That's the conversation that we have to have in this nation. And if we don't have it, we do that to our own peril. That's right. Thank you. And thank you for what you, you and Frank Luntz have done. It's terribly important. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.